Welcome to the Grey Eye and Disability Arts online podcast, Disability And, bringing together thoughtful discussion and debate. This month's topic is on disability and the stories we tell. Jodie Alyssa Bickerton talks to theatre maker and filmmaker Matilda Ibini. Welcome to another podcast of Disability And, and today it's about the stories we tell. I'm Jodie Alyssa Bickerton, and I'm here at Grey Eye HQ. I've got the heaters turned up because I've just got back from Australia and I'm acclimatising to this wonderful sunny London weather. And I'm here today talking with a wonderful artist. Off the back of a successful run at Bunker Theatre late last year with her second full-length play, Little Miss Burden, which was about personal experiences growing up with physical impairment. Bionic theatre maker and filmmaker Matilda Ibini is kicking off the new year with Disability Monologues, which is a new BBC America series of short films curated by British actor and Grey Eye patron Matt Fraser, who you would have seen recently in His Dark Materials. Matilda's first play, Muscovado, was about slavery and the sugar trade, it was produced by Burnt Out Theatre and premiered in October 2014 and toured in the UK. Muscovado subsequently co-won the Alfred Fagan Audience Award in 2015. And Matilda's worked with Grey Eye on and off, uh, particularly in her artistic residency at Grey Eye in the new writing department. Her work has been staged and presented at the Old Vic Theatre, Bush Theatre, Hampstead Theatre, National Theatre Shed, Soho Theatre, Arcola Theatre, Bunker Theatre and the Vaults Festival and has also presented work on BBC Radio 3. Her awards include BAFTA and Warner Brothers Scholarship from 2014 to 2016 and Matilda also won the Peggy Ramsey Foundation Grant in 2016. From radio plays, film, stage, Matilda always has something cooking and it's no wonder I can't get lunch dates with her anymore. Uh, welcome Matilda to Grey Eye. Hello JD. <laughs> what do you think of that intro? Yeah, that was incredibly generous. Um... <laughs> you are always so, so busy and you always have something, whenever I, whenever I see you or t- uh, chat to you, you've always got a project and not just one there's usually about five on the go <laughs> at the same time it feels like everyone wants a piece of you you're like the the hot thing in town Matilda am I yeah I you mean, are I feel like that that's not reflected in my bank account <laughs> uh, we might need to sort that out then I sat down with you when you first told me that you'd stopped acting and you'd started in your words I've started to do a bit of writing is what you said um what do you write on your travel documents when it asks for your occupation now? Yeah, I do write playwright and screenwriter very proudly. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I got into writing because um, I was a really shy kid growing up and I didn't really talk to people who weren't in my immediate family. And one like random day, my mum got a leaflet in the post about... Um, uh, youth drama classes do you have a shy kid do they need to build up their confidence bring them down on Saturday and my mum was like do you want to do this do you want to try and I was like no um, I have no desire to talk to people <laughs> <laughs> 
but she was like oh it could be good um and then that's yeah that's kind of how I fell into acting and like most with most kind of like youth drama things you just assume you want to be an actor that like that's the because that's the only kind of like main um profession that you see so you're like yeah I want to be an actor and I thought that for a while um before it got a bit yeah it got a bit complicated that I couldn't I didn't feel as confident doing it, but I did. I knew I didn't want to leave this world entirely. Um, so quite a number of people kind of pushed and suggested had I thought about writing before. So that was going to be my next question. Do you <laughs> feel like you fell into writing or were you like gloriously pushed into it? Um, more like, more like gently nudged. Okay. Like, um, like I used to write, like I used to write like poetry in school and things. Um, and now what we call fan fiction Mm. I used to write a lot of fan fiction (laughs) as a kid particularly around Scooby-Doo okay we can't let you go without talking (laughs) about that Uh, Um, give us an example oh my god so basically (laughs) this could get picked up Matilda you never know (laughs) so basically what was it so I'd rewrite Shaggy so I was Shaggy so I was Scooby-Doo's best friend and then the smartest person in my class uh was Velma and then her best friend was um, Daphne. And then our favourite school teacher was Freddie because he had... A... So the, the, the way I'd equated it as a child was that because our school teacher drove a motorbike, you could drive a van. So... <laughs> and then we used to go on school trips to all these like haunted places that um, then one by one people would disappear. And then it's up to me and Scooby to find them. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> Did you do the fanfic? Does that no? That doesn't include illustrations, does it? No, it's no, just, I couldn't draw a, at all. Yeah. But yeah, no, I I very vividly remember writing reams. So I used to kind of you know like the um, your exercise book. I used mm. to kind of steal them because I knew where the cupboard was in school. So I'd steal a couple of them to write. Matilda, my what school did you go to? <laughs> it doesn't exist anymore. Ah! <laughs> Been shut it's, down because you gone. use their stationery budget. <laughs> Um, yeah, I used to, now, because I didn't know what to call it at the time, I was like, oh yeah, I write stories, but they're based on other stories, and now we call them fan fiction. <laughs> Matilda, you've got a really good eye for sort of what's going on in the industry and kind of finding, I guess, those new stories. Um, whenever I go to the theatre and I see you, um, and you always seem to be at the the stuff that's kind of... Yeah, like fresh and new, and I always get this sense that oh, if Matilda's there seeing this, this, you know, you know something, you're in on something, <laughs> and this is going to be like the next best thing, the next big uh, thing. Um, I get the sense that you always sort of have people's back as well with your like fellow artists oh, and yeah, trying to yeah. kind of be there for support, but also, yeah, I think you have a really good instinct. I mean, I feel like you've given me too much credit. Um, no, we've talked about this, Matilda. It's adequate. Um, so, yeah, I definitely see a lot of friends work and rec- and I listen to a lot of recommendations of, like, there's, like, a few people who, if they tell me to go see a show, then I know it's worth booking for. Because that's mm. the thing, I think, with, especially living with the kind of condition that I have, I've got very limited energy anyway, and my resources are limited in terms of, like, hours with my carer how much money I have for taxis so I do kind of have to be quite picky about where I go what what I go see like I don't just kind of 
I, and I don't have the funds to just like book for everything and anything. And there is a lot that I miss. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of incredible work that I don't get to see. But um, yeah, I, I'm usually kind of rooting for the, the underdogs. Like mm-hmm. I want to see people who are still kind of starting out like um, who and, and who are trying new things and being experimental and not just kind of nothing against people who make, you know, kind of traditional theatre or the well-made play. But I kind of my taste wants to go beyond that. I want to see how else are we telling in a way more global stories like because people are made up of so many things. We're not just kind of one particular trait or personality or culture. And I kind of want to see that represented on stage. And I don't always get that sense from the like really bigger theatres. So I'm always kind of going to the um, the more like subsidised theatre or smaller venues or even at times venues that aren't arts venues to go see stuff. Can you remember the first, yeah, the first story that you ever wrote? And where were you? I distinctly remember being in my bedroom that I shared with my older sister and I was supposed to be doing my physio because I always got sent to my room to do my physio, but I wasn't. <laughs> I was <laughs> instead um, writing and I think I was just writing about being able to, a bit like, which is probably why I like Doctor Who so much, kind of like time travel. So like to be able to leave your familiar place, your familiar home and world and travel to this just unknown world. Um, but I, but I was an, I was a lone traveller, so I was like very much on my own, but like going around exploring all these made up land, landscapes and, and meeting all these kinds of aliens and things, um, I think was my very first story. How did you get from, because I think it's, it's different for everyone, so, but I'm just interested particularly in um, how you go from writing those stories in your room to then, yeah, having um, yeah, a, a play on at the bunker, which was, you know, that I know that went through an R&D process mm. as well and it was something you were incredibly proud of and it was just a fantastic play. Oh, um, and I think, yeah, I, I, I just wondered how you kind of got to that stage, I suppose. Like what is the, is it about someone who kind of, believed in you or did you go into a competition what was the I'm trying to think of like the summarized version because it was a very long process I think um I definitely did have some early kind of champions who were like you should try writing like um and the little that I might have scribbled they were very um encouraging about writing again and doing it more like I wasn't put off I wasn't like oh that shit don't ever write again it was more like keep going see I think there's something in there so people seeing potential in me before I even uh, saw it in myself because I just used to write the the only person I used to write for was myself but I think it was through encouragement that I was encouraged to like consider writing for others or telling stories in a way that was shareable Um, and yeah, so everything from, like, uh, my old English teacher, Miss Gallagher, used to encourage me writing poetry to a friend slash mentor who I'm working with now, Gabriel Bissett-Smith, who, when I'd written, like, my... Yeah, kind of, like, a really early attempt at, like, a monologue and a duologue was really encouraging. I felt like 
kind of like when a lot of people are pointing out the same thing you you listen mm. if they're all like you should try this so it's not if it's one person you, you can just ignore it but if it's a couple people you're like maybe they can't all be wrong surely <laughs> you know kind of well because muscovado um, was your first full yeah. play was so, that um so the first one to be produced so what so what was the first time where you um, actually saw yeah those that writing where it actually made it to the stage because that is such a daunting feeling isn't yeah. it where it's like you've been in your room or you've been in this enclosed space writing um, your heart out and then suddenly it's in front of people and it's so the first time was in um, many many years ago was in secondary school our Cola theatre before in its old venue used to run this scheme with schools where you'd write like a, a monologue or a two-hander and then it would be performed in front of actors in in at your cl- uh, like a little performance for the class at Arcola and that was the first time I'd ever seen something I write make my class laugh and it's gonna sound really weird but something that wasn't me because like uh, I was horrifically bullied in secondary school so it wasn't hard to make people laugh but for the first time, this was something that I'd written with intention and my class, people in my class laughed. And you and had I was control like, over yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, whoa, what is this? And people were like, oh, yours is really funny. And I was like, thanks. <laughs> that was for me, like, probably my earliest experience of that. And then it happened again a couple of years later when, um, when I was still acting and had written myself a monologue, but had written... And for this kind of showcase. But the showcase was curated by Genevieve Barr. Ah. Um, that's how we met through this uh, week-long workshops of working with um, practitioners and writers. And um, I'd written myself a monologue and uh, these two other actors a duologue. And again, like a positive response from it being performed. And I was like, oh, maybe there is something in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I I truly developed a love for it was when I did the Soho Young Writers, the very first year that I did it, um, just opened my mind and I was like, oh my God, yes, this is what I want to be doing. So your mum pushed you into those Saturday yeah. morning... Like, yeah, you- she had a... She had a, whoever dropped that leaflet off because it wasn't the postman. Um, <laughs> Yeah. because it just shows that um you know with all the cuts happening with that sort of like drama in schools mm. and youth theatres um it is that thing of trying to say that yeah it's not just about I'm wanting to be a performer like it opens up so much more and, yeah. and what you've said is you know what you've just articulated so beautifully is the the power of what it can open up for us in terms of our identities but mm. also other career paths and absolutely there's so many life skills to be developed through kind of the arts that had I not accessed those opportunities or people who don't get those opportunities may not ever get a chance to develop mm-hmm. it's more than a shame that the, we live under a government that can to be honest give a shit mm. um, that actually if we don't develop those life skills they they have a better they, they can control us more basically mm. yeah we talk about like as artists having an equal part, like a a well of anger and sadness, mm-hmm. equal to the well of happiness that we draw on to to make work. Um, is it an even thing for you? Where do you sort of draw some of your stories from? Is it does it come from those 
those struggles sometimes and those fights because you know we yeah, talk a lot about yeah. you know the government cuts and the effect and impact that's having on disabled people oh, um, um yeah I draw a lot from anger I feel like the balance is I'm probably more angry than people realize I, I hold a lot of anger but the way that it I'd say manifests itself is quite weird it's quite strange um so a lot of my yeah a lot of my starting points from things a lot of the stories that I've told have usually derived from something that's pissed me off or mm. something that I struggle to articulate um, because I, it, it just angers me so the emotion attached to it is so overwhelming I'm like I'll, I'll try and see if I can break this down in a story as to why this upsets me so much but um yeah which is quite weird because like, especially when people say like I come across very like calm and soft-spoken and you're like cool that's good that no one get can feel the heat because I'm like constantly quite off yeah I'm quite often a ball of rage mm. you have this um you have this like real gift of like humor in your work and, like, and that's probably that thing of where it does come from anger and like you were talking mm. about when you made you know the class laugh or the youth theater laugh when you did your play and you, you draw on that humor and um that that's what you do with anger sometimes you have yeah. to just like flip it don't you yeah. and just go like how do you, this is so ridiculous mm. that it's funny but it's also so funny that it's ridiculous yeah I think humor is very soothing for anger just because there's so much to be pissed off about um let's list them all now <laughs> where do I even start from this morning um yeah there's so much to be pissed off about about and and I think a lot of the time it's like uh existing as a disabled person in this world like the injust the daily injustices you face and and encounter and how there is no justice for them like these are just injustices that you almost have to accept and it's really really difficult to swallow like especially when all you're trying to do is is live your life like you're just trying to do your best like and that still is not only good enough, but there are forces out there trying to stop you. Mm-hmm. Um, is yeah, probably explains why I'm so angry a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, but if I didn't, but but what I'm very, I guess, aware of is trying to not let that anger incinerate all my other emotions or incinerate my goals. That actually, how can I? How can this anger be useful to me? Um, and so far, at least in this career, it's been useful in being able to be a magnifying glass for things that, uh, when I'm looking for stories or for characters that interest me, or when I'm going down a hole of, of thoughts, like it can help me identify what what is the, the trigger or the, the starting point for something, that this needs investigation, this is the thing you need to start um, picking apart kind of thing. Do you think theatre does enough to challenge the politics uh, or the, the those struggles? We're obviously writing those stories and and you know placing them centre stage, but um, is it is it reaching people enough? Do you think do we need to be thinking about it in a different way? I'd say at least my experience of UK theatre, no. It is not doing nowhere near enough. Like, that might be because of the government cuts has decimated what could have been. Like, because there's a parallel universe where those cuts didn't happen. And I wonder what 
the experience would have been like as a disabled artist with that with that funding in place and the the um the initiatives or schemes that were what once available still being available kind of thing i don't i yeah it's there are so many theater companies and people fighting uh to to address that gap that the cuts have left but without adequate sustainable funding no we're still going to always be trying to put a plaster on a gaping hole there's this weird thing of like um that a lot of the funding has to be about like almost that theatres have to be non-political spaces like they they can't pick a side and you're like you do realize by not picking a side even in saying not picking the the quote-unquote bad side is agreeing with them like not picking the more the the immoral side so we're not going to pick this side but also not going to pick this side that makes us impartial no by not picking a side does not make you impartial it, that is a side it is a side to stand back and let chaos happen let um you know uh disaster happen um and i think theatre cannot stand back and try and be impartial mm-hmm. it has to, i mean theatre the the creation of theatre is political, so it has to be political. It can't, it can't not be impartial, um, and we won't see we won't see like necessary change if if theatre is still always trying to be, you know, um, is always trying to uh, brand itself as an impartial space mm. for everyone as well. And it's like, well, no, that is not the truth. Like being like the idea of like denouncing someone who is racist not denouncing them is not supporting anti-racism you have to actively denounce something or stand by something as disabled artists um well maybe just from your experience felt like actually those cuts have really directly affected you in terms of your developing your career oh without a doubt without a doubt and over what period of time do you feel that that's happened is that like in the last 10 years or is that Um, in the last five years I think probably overall because I when I I got into the or started thinking about writing as a career after the cuts had happened. So I was looking for resources that weren't there anymore or finding about, hearing about schemes that had closed Mm. or no longer uh, running anymore. So having to navigate, um, having to figure out, is this what I wanted to do with barely any like resources or not knowing anyone involved in the industry? Um, Like one of the, especially earlier on in my career, one of the biggest supporters I had was Ideas Tap. Ideas mm-hmm. Tap was what LinkedIn should be, but isn't, <laughs> in terms of funding and finding out information and understanding the industry. But also they had so many free workshops. I went to as I went to as many as I could. I'd be every month I would have gone to at least three ideas workshop workshops from everything from journalism to writing plays to how do you get a play on how do you meet a director how do you do this how do you do that as someone who had no connections to this industry had I not gone to any of those workshops I probably still wouldn't have had a play on yet or I still wouldn't have figured out or or altogether packed it in because I'm like I don't understand this industry I don't know anyone in it and I can't seem to get a leg up it's obviously not for me but hadn't had it not been for those workshops where someone broke it down 
someone sat down with you, group of 30 of us sometimes, or group of 10 of us. It's like, so this is what the industry is like. Yeah, I know it's not fair, but that's the reality. But here's how you can navigate it. Or these are different avenues you can try. They're not all guaranteed to work, but you can give them a shot. Like, had someone, had I not been at those workshops, this, I'd still be, I've, I'd, I'd, I get the sense I would have packed it in because I don't, if for me, I feel like I, there's only so many times I knock on a door before I just walk away. Like I'm not someone who keeps, yeah, let's keep knocking at that door. Let's try and break down the door or, you know, yeah, exactly. Let's put, set the door on fire. Like I would have just been like, no, I guess this just isn't for me. It's almost as it's almost accepted discrimination that it's okay to discriminate against disabled people that 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 is somehow like an unwritten unsaid but definitely enforced belief that it is okay to uh, for the person not to be able to access whether it's a physical space or uh, yeah or or any kind of um, space or or having to make any kind of um, requirement or 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 address any kind of need Um, it's so it's almost like it's just Un, it's just this accepted thing that yeah we, we're allowed to do that and there won't be any repercussions because yeah, there's no money we, we're going to have a venue and we're going to have a director and we're going to have a creative team and we're going to have all these other things because that's what you do in theatre but oh when it comes to the other mm. access no I think people yes. understanding that access or access needs is a human right and not a it's not a luxury it's not it's not a choice. Not an add-on. Yeah, exactly. That it's it's a human right and it's a shame law hasn't caught up to that yet. Yeah. Because it's not written down and because there are no kind of financial, any kind of criminal penalties, which is why it feels almost like the discrimination is acceptable. Mm. That it's okay to just kind of, yeah, sorry, just, you know, we can't afford a ramp. It's the idea the onus isn't on us to change or bring our own... Um, oh yeah I'll come with my own ramp it's fine don't worry I'll come with my own accessible car it's fine and it's like well no it isn't Mm -hmm. but it's because it's still seen as a kind of like the world is or or the the environment that you live in has to bend over backwards for you as opposed to no Mm -hmm. it's it's a human right yeah yeah and that's kind of I guess what we mean also about you know theatre not doing enough because um yeah and sometimes it's about the spaces in which we inhabit Mm -hmm. as well to to tell those stories they're not reaching where they need to reach yeah. well I just wanted to tell you while yeah. you're here that I've been in workshops with you um where you've saved me so many times oh, with plenty. well we've been a good double act yeah but um I do feel like there I've watched people when you have like dished out these golden nuggets of advice or like given people that comfort and assurance that it's okay that things didn't turn out the way they envisaged them and giving them really practical advice about those things and then seeing the penny drop um and their kind of eyes locking with you going oh my gosh yes this is a revelation um you wouldn't see it because you're busy (laughs) saying it but it's absolutely what I've observed more than once um and you've talked about some of the influential people in your life what is the what is the most precious advice you think you've ever received? I think um, was well, just the kind of like that, even though it's really hard to, is to not compare like your career, that everyone's on a different path and however long it takes you to get to where you 
need to get to or want to get to like there's no it's, it definitely isn't a competition um because I think very early on especially when it feels like like writing in itself or this career is like a marathon like but one that actually there isn't a finishing line like the finishing line is when you decide to stop so like you're allowed to run it in however long you need to like there isn't someone there isn't a um there isn't prize money for coming first or last like actually as long as you get to the the goal you get past the goalposts that you wanted to then you've you've won kind of thing because i think and especially um when no no one no one else is living your life except you are so like no one lives the way i live except me like yes there are similarities in other people's lives with who live with carers but like however long it takes me to write the next play or whatever like that's how long it takes like i don't i don't need to be writing plays in six weeks i won't be writing plays in six weeks and especially things in six weeks they probably it wouldn't be good like it wouldn't be it wouldn't be that's not my process that's not my journey that's not my path um but I always have to remind myself when like because you see friends or peers doing incredibly well and one play after the next and you know kind of thing and it's hard not to think oh why am I why is my career not going like that it's like well I'm not living their life and they're not living mine absolutely I want to just make sure I have fun on this journey that I'm on, however long it takes me or however long it lasts as well. Because I don't know if tomorrow all of a sudden I decide to pack it all in and become, you know, a psychologist or whatever. Like, But I want to know that I, I did it on my own terms. I can't imagine... Uh, new writing without you, Matilda, um, and thinking about all the deaf and disabled artists that we're working with, and thinking about what you were talking about with the schemes and um, and the cuts and all the the barriers that are faced. Um, I always feel every day like really so lucky to know so many brilliant people. And yes, it absolutely does need to be more deaf and disabled artists who yeah. are given that leg up because absolutely. the creativity and the stories that people and this industry and the world are missing out on yeah. is tremendous. And of course, not just deaf and disabled artists, but um, but those barriers do still exist and we need to continue to smash them down. And, absolutely. Um, you know, the fact that you're going along and you know, kind of rooting for the underdog is such a, a generous way of being able to support people as well as they kind of continue their journey and I have this segment that I've developed and it's called care package so with all these fights and these struggles that we have um if we could send you one thing um as your care package what is it some people have uh Tani Gray Thompson had uh Haribo uh and someone left a sandwich on her doorstep um and think mandy colloran said um, it was about having her fellow disabled women uh next to her in those moments um yeah what's your care package as in not your actual care package (laughs) (laughs) as in like in the the spirit of this segment yeah (laughs) um oh so in my care package there's definitely music playing um i was like I like yeah I like music a lot more than I'd like to admit like <laughs> and envious that I can't write songs um I like to listen to other people's stories like I think usually when if my reality gets difficult or hard I want to get lost in someone else's story for a little bit um because there's something about kind of 
drawing on um, the power of stories as like inspiration, coping, realizing that you're not alone and 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 just understanding like life is difficult for everyone in just in in a variety of ways sometimes in ways that you just can't imagine so i kind of yeah i like listening to lots of people's stories like i can remember when my mum used to sit us uh down and we she'd tell us like stories of her growing up in nigeria and i'd love that because i just mm-hmm. i was like at the time i'd never been to nigeria and i was, I just love hearing about this place I've never heard of, but I know exists and is real. I just like, yeah, sometimes I just want to listen to other people's stories. And for me, music does tell stories just really compactly. So I love, yeah, getting lost in other people's stories. Beautiful. Well, Matilda, um, you're fantastic. I love you. And please come and have <laughs> lunch too. soon. <laughs> yes. um, I always get such brilliant energy from you when we oh. sit and chat and uh, yeah, feel really energised. So thank you. And uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write your story now. Oh, yeah. thank you. Visit greyeye.org and disabilityarts.online for details of productions, events, interviews, opinions, reviews and learning opportunities.